Welcome to Inspiration, Influence and Impact, the podcast with your host, Karen Caswell. Listen as guests from all walks of life share where they have found inspiration, who has influenced them in their lives and what impact they hope to have on the lives of others. These stories not only connect and empower us, but inspire, influence and impact those around us often more than we'll ever know. We acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and all Indigenous peoples of the world as the traditional owners and custodians of country and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters, sky and culture. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Inspiration, Influence and Impact, the podcast. My guest this episode is a natural born connector, an instructor, counsellor, facilitator, author and mother. Her work involves creating positive change in and out of schools by supporting the well-being of educators while simultaneously building resiliency and restoring the joy of teaching. I'm delighted to welcome Lisa Bayless to the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here to talk with you today. Great. So for the listeners who may not be familiar with your imprint on the world yet, can you please share a little bit about your current context, your location, your current work, and your passions, mission, and vision? Oof, all in one go. Let's do it. <laughs> um, well, thank you. I'm joining you today from the Lekwungen People's Territories of the Esquimalt Songhees and West Saanich um, nations, which is now known as Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. So I'm I'm on the other side of the world, you know, in the middle of our winter days, um, and I'm coming to you from my home, um, and I am a teacher, counselor, and facilitator, and recently a book author. My real passion is work around supporting educators through a foundation of self-compassion. So learning through my life, learning through things like mindfulness, um, have been a really influence in my life, but really this practice of how do I meet the hard things that come up with a practice of care, compassion, kindness, um, both fierce and tender in a way to grow my resilience and keep me doing the work that I do. And because of this work, it's really given me the opportunity to share this, um, this intention around really challenging our way of thinking, our way of being from a deeply caring place to educators around the world because it is such a giving um, profession obviously we give a lot to others um, yeah. and it, it is makes that even more important that we give back to ourselves um, yeah and I find that when I start talking about this with educators many people be like I am so compassionate I I know what that means and you know the definition of compassion is to to notice suffering and have a desire or supports to alleviate to be with someone and we do this in our classrooms with all the little beings around us all the time, right? We're, we're very inclined to want to give more support, more reach out, know how to help. We naturally find ourselves in that way. What I've discovered is when you ask educators, how do they meet themselves during moments when it's hard, when they are the ones who need to support themselves beyond just self-care, but deeply like support their own well-being. We often don't know how to do that, or we don't meet it in a 
the same kind and tender way we would meet our students, like the way we would actually physically, the tone that, that we would talk to people, other people in our lives, we don't use that same tone and gentleness back with ourselves. In fact, we tend to be the opposite. Mm. We tend to be approaching ourselves with a lot of criticism, a lot of judgment, perfectionist thinking and harshness. And what I've learned and through the research that I've done and how I share with educators is that that tone, that judgy, critical, harsh tone actually makes it harder for us to show up into our work, especially when it's directed to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So generally, the definition of self-compassion is, can I talk to myself the way I would, I would talk to my students, the way I would talk to my colleagues, the way I can know and I know how to share with everybody else? What would it be like that to turn towards this one too, mm -hmm. to oneself? it's a journey and it's a practice and it's an adventure. Mm. Yeah. And I, like you say, I do think a lot of um, pe people in general, but as uh, educators do find that really challenging. Yeah. Super challenging. We tend to be a group of people to, who have been programmed to think in a perfectionist way, to strive, to make things look a certain way, to get people to be a certain way, to act in a certain way. And when we don't get that, we tend to really judge ourselves with it. Mm -hmm. tend to have a little bit more of a higher anxiety around, you know, creating a way of being that doesn't always feel authentic or real, but because we've been, you know, culturized to experience it that way. Mm -hmm. And so when we start practicing with, with educators around these, these practices, when we start working with teachers, you know, there can be a little bit of a resistance. Like, I don't want to do this. This is hard. It doesn't feel sincere. I don't know how to, you know, I've been harsh on myself all my life. Look at how great I mm -hmm. like where I'm at. And yet the, the growth and the shifts and change that we can experience as human beings beyond our classroom are exponential in how we can continue to show up in our world. Mm. Do you find um, that it's also, I think, expectations placed on teachers that you do it for the kids? Yes, we do. But when we turn around and, and are brave enough to express our own needs, they're often ignored or sort of met in a negative yeah. way. Uh, yeah. And there's judgment with that, right? Like yeah. from our colleagues, from our culture, from the people around us. So we've systemically created a space where it's hard for people to put their own needs first. And I think that's whether you're a mother, whether you're an educator, whether you're in any caregiving mm. profession, um, because we've come up with the idea that other people matter more. Mm. Um, and what I'm not saying is that it's a selfish to turn towards ourselves because self-compassion isn't selfish. It's like we actually get to learn to include ourselves in that circle of how we care for others mm. and care for ourselves. And that if all we do is give, 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 and, and many, we're seeing this globally right now, educators who have, especially through a pandemic, have continued to give, 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 flip and learn on or teach online and, and change and, you know, go to another school and find other ways of being. And they're constantly being told to give they learn at the end that their capacity for giving is exhaustive. Mm. They're like, don't have many more. And we're seeing like global levels of burnout. Mm. But when we start to learn for ourselves to experience how to meet our own needs, to support ourselves in this journey, we actually have more capacity to continue to show up for other people. Mm. So it becomes actually um, almost selfish, selfish not to show up for ourselves, that we actually become more depleted by not including ourselves in that circle. Mm. 
and I think you know no one else will do it for us it's like a lot of things in in life you know other no one else is going to do that for you we know the system is set up in a way and and whilst I think you know this it's starting to recognize the importance of you know meeting the needs of of the teachers or carers whoever it may be those changes are small and slow um, and it really is back on us yeah and it's a fine line and I'll say this, Karen, because I often I've, I worked in an education system for over 20 years and this system is broken. There are a lot of things that are not good and in Canada and in Australia and, and, and in the U.S. and anywhere you go, educators will tell you that, that it shouldn't be about me. Um, we need to change the system. And I 100 percent agree. And yet what I've also discovered is that the only capacity I've had any change in systems is when I had enough energy to be able to show up and do that. And what I experienced, especially as an individual educator, is when I went through my own burnout was like, I didn't have anything left to show up and say, I need to change the system. I need to fight for, you know, smaller class sizes or better class composition or how to support this kid when I was in my own level of burnout. Mm. And so overall, systemic changes have to occur globally within education and how we, you know, stop pushing kids through and assessing. And there's so much that we get to change. But the only way change can occur is if we start within ourselves first and then help that grow out. Mm. So I often say, like, I'm not here to shame or blame if people are struggling. You know, it's not the onus is not just on you. We recognize that like a global system has to change. And yet or however you can imagine that change happening when we have um, like if you can imagine a whole bunch of educators or your whole system of people who are regulated and slowed down and feeling energized and feeling hopeful, it's amazing how much more of a different culture shift or systemat- systemic change that can happen when you have those individuals who are in a regulated state. Hmm. I think you've sort of alluded a little bit to it um, just in that little um, conversation then, but where have you found inspiration and what impact has it had? Hmm. Well, I would say that there's been two like life events that have happened for me for been my inspiration in this work. And the first was really my inspiration were my own children. I actually started this work more as a parent than I did as a as a teacher. In 2014 here in British Columbia in Canada, we went on strike in September, September being our new school start or fresh beginning of the year. And we actually didn't go back to school that year. So you can imagine um, for, you know, Australia and in going back in January and just not going back. We mm. ended, ended up spending almost two and a half weeks without pay, picketing on the, on the sidelines for really fighting for better class size and composition. And in the end, we ended up going back um, two and a half weeks into September without a deal without anything we asked for um, and feeling really like depleted and in, and really feeling undervalued. And I remember walking into my, my class workroom at the time um, into my school and just talking to these teachers, you know, in September who are normally feeling quite energized and excited about teaching, were feeling really depleted. And I thought, how is this going to help our students? And I'm a school-based counselor and that year, I saw an influx in students coming to see me who also were feeling quite disconnected, who were not feeling energized, who were struggling with learning and having depressive um, symptoms. And I started to see this correlation of how when our teachers are really undervalued and underappreciated and feeling low, we see more of that with our students. 
And I say that this was a shift for me as a parent because my kids, I have two beautiful children who were just about to start into the school system that year. And I thought, how do I send my babies into a system where our teachers are so underappreciated? And so since then, I've been on a bit of a, well, any rooftop I can find to talk about how do we deeply support the resilience of our educators so that we can show up and be present for our kids. Because in the end, we are in the business of children and we do want our kids to learn and be great learners and be amazing human beings. But we can't do that if our educators aren't present and, and well with them. Mm. So that was one of the big um, inspirations of my journey towards this work. And then the second big thing that happened for me is I actually hit my own burnout level. So while whilst doing all this, while trying to raise two beautiful human beings and work full time as a teacher and talk about teacher well-being, I got really, really sick. And, and I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Bodies just sort of stopped and I ended up feeling a lot of burnout at school. And then I actually physically slipped and fell at school. So my whole body kind of shut down. And it was during that time where I was, and in it, I was like, how can I talk about teacher well-being? If look at me, I'm like in bed, I can't get out of bed. I'm, I'm not even modeling this. And it was really important to me. And I could hear um, a lot of judgment come up into my own practice. I was really harsh. And I, and I really didn't think I was doing anything worthy. And I turned towards these practices of self-compassion. I really dug into what does mean. I had a mindful practice, but I wanted to discover more. And I think it saved me, it supported my my whole wellness journey and support systems around how do I keep showing up through this work? And it was the foundational practices of self-compassion, meeting myself in a, in a kind and loving way, recognizing I wasn't alone, that other people were going through similar things with me and that it was very less isolating and really paying attention to what my thoughts and feelings were and meeting them instead of with criticism and judgment with at least the beginning of some curious um, kindness. And I've learned, again, maybe through my own journey is in life, we can avoid um, suffering. Mm. In fact, it's one of the things that we can guarantee that life is going to shift and change and through, like pull the rug under our feet. And we're not even going to be expecting it. Some of them are big. Some of them are little things that just cause us discomfort or, you know, cause us to be frustrated. We can't avoid those. And so sometimes we have to have those big ones to learn that we have the resilient capacity to keep going. Um, because it's going to happen at some point. Mm. And what happens, I think, is when we start to recognize that this is a part of living and knowing that you know how to hold those moments in a real caring and tender and loving way, holding yourself through that, it makes it less challenging. So we can't avoid the struggles, but we can also learn to not resist them so much. Mm that we can turn towards them. We can actually start to learn to accept all emotions, the gamut of it. Like we can actually learn to befriend anger. We can learn to discover what it's like to be okay with resentment, to be fine with agitation and overwhelm, to recognize that these things will go through us, that they don't linger forever. Most people, when they get to a real difficult point is they get stuck. It really is heavy. They get stuck in emotions in their body. They get stuck in their thinking and they get stuck in the patterns in their life. So crisis is actually really important as a part of allowing us to be unstuck so we can create change. Mm. And then another stuff will happen because this is what life is like. But, you know, when we learn to meet those, those really challenging moments with a, a sense of ease, like, yeah, this is hard, but I can do hard things and I'm going to be all right. And I'll find a way through. It sure makes those suffering moments a little less, um, a little less hard to go through. Mm. 
Do you think there's a generational change, I guess, in mindset or thought processes um, with the younger um, educators and, and coming through because of the societal shift around thinking around um, mental health, well-being, all of those things. Whereas I know for myself, you know, there's it was very much a stigma. So it was it's yeah. hidden. Um, you you wouldn't acknowledge or admit that you were struggling, um, you know, because it was sort of looked down upon. Um, yeah seen in a negative way whereas I feel like there's a lot more openness around those issues these days that you know fingers crossed that hopefully you know as younger people um, grow up and and mature they're they're learning these I suppose skills and mindset it's a bit a bit more natural it's not such a huge change and I think that this something about the global pandemic has also helped with that um, to take a little bit of the the bias is out of mental health, the stress out of it, that that people get permission to be human a little more. That didn't used to happen because I think this mm. is where some of, especially, you know, my generation too was like, push, work hard, mm. you know, don't let them see any feelings. Don't be vulnerable. You know, like you're weak if you're vulnerable. And yet we're discovering that, you know, it actually takes enormous amounts of strength to say like, I'm not okay right now. Mm. Like this takes so much courage. This is not... Um, you know, falling apart, it's actually a, a building ourselves up. And I think that we're starting to see people know that it's safer to do that. And we also know school systems take decades longer than most of the world to change, right? Like, it just takes longer. And yet, I think we're starting to see this. I watch my own children and the boundaries they set around what they're capable of doing and how they're able to come up with words that encourage themselves as opposed to being harsh, right? Like, it's amazing to me that I think that this is happening. One of the things that I've learned is as educators, the more we practice and discover this. And I keep saying the word practice because, you know, these things are not like one-offs. You can't just be like, I'm going to learn to be nice to myself and I'll just do it once and then I'm okay, right? <laughs> that would be like saying, I'm going to work out and you go to the gym once and you're like, okay, I'm done for life, right? Like mindfulness, self-compassion, resilience, these these things are ongoing practices of, of mindset and well-being. And when we start to model that for our students, when we get to show them like what it's like to be human without being overly vulnerable, it gives kids permission for that too. Mm. And the only way we can model it is if we've had an embodied uh, experience of what it means. We really have to understand it. And I think this is where a lot of stickiness happens with educators. We see a lot of educators stay neck up, like they stay in their head. They want to be knowing, they want to be understanding about it. And yet most of deep learning happens neck down. There's a felt experience that goes through our whole being, you know, like we know what it's like to be in a, a really great learning environment because our whole presence is there. We know what it's like to have a full experience of, of you know, understanding and feeling gratitude or joy because our whole body is there. And as educators learning to be embodied with these practices can shift how they show up in their classrooms and can shift a generation of students without even explicitly teaching. We can change um, whole classrooms just by how we change ourselves. Mm. There is the explicit teaching for our kids. It's many, many, you know, emotional intelligence skills, which I think is really important. And um, it's great to see that it's being recognized and acknowledged that really almost the most valuable thing that they need to learn um, rather than, yeah. you know, the academics. 
hundred percent. Because then, you know, we're also in a generation of time where we can learn anything we want, whenever we want. Like mm. things are there for us to understand. But if we don't know how to know and learn about how do we meet ourselves, if we don't know how to um, understand a feeling, have some emotional intelligence before between like around it, and then notice how to get through it. Mm. These are things that we need to teach. And yes, we want to explicitly teach these things, but I often, often think it's really important that we understand them before we teach them. Mm. So like, I wouldn't jump into a calculus 12 or a physics, like a high level calculus teacher and just start teaching things that I don't know until I've experienced it. You know, I can't sit down at a piano and just start teaching piano lessons. Mm. You know, like I can maybe get three or four notes down and that's it. So if we want our kids to know this and we want to teach it, and I think we should, we still need to come from an authentic place. We need to have experienced some of these, the social emotional learnings. Kids smell authenticity. Mm. They know whether or not you actually are just trying to teach them something because it's the right thing to do or whether you truly have a value-based understanding with it. And I think that the more we as educators can come from a, what do we know about how to teach this social emotional learning, this mindful practice, this deep awareness, the deeper kids are going to understand it too. Mm. And so many kids these days seems to be a greater need for them to, to learn a lot of those skills yeah. as well. You know, there's, they have lots of things going on um, in they their do. lives. The trauma, the isolation, uh-huh. the loneliness, the, you know, the disconnection in a world of connection. These are huge things that a whole generation, like we didn't have to have those as a, when I was a kid, as a generation, we struggled when I was t- went through teenage angst, but there mm-hmm. wasn't the same level of knowing that's going on in the world where our youth today have experienced. Mm-hmm. So we need to teach them more so than ever how to come back into their own mind and their body, to be comfortable with it, to meet themselves in a gentle way and not to be critical and harsh on themselves. Cause that just adds to the level of stress. Mm-hmm. There's actually research that shows that when we're criticizing ourselves, it actually targets our amygdala, which is where our stress response happens. Yeah. So just by saying negative things, by criticizing ourselves, by harshly turning towards ourselves, we're heightening our sympathetic nervous system, which is creating more adrenaline and cortisol in our body. So if our kids are learning how to be critical to themselves, we're keeping them in that mm-hmm. like stress response constantly. We know kids also can't learn when they're stressed, when their mm-hmm. brains are in that fight, flight, freeze, no learning can occur. We can only occur when our prefrontal cortex is online. So if we want learning to occur, we need to learn how to regulate their bodies. And kids can't regulate on their own. Even up to like 18, 19, 20, they need an adult to regulate with them. But if adults are dysregulated, how is any learning going to happen in our Mm. classroom? The next question is, who has influenced you and in what way? Well, I think my kids have been probably the biggest influence. And I know every mom says that, but truly, you know, I, I've learned a lot of how important it is to slow down, to be present with them, to learn to meet kindness first, because I've also been the other side of that as a mom, right? Where it's like, hurry up, just get your shoes. Mm. I've got to get out the door. You're driving me crazy. I'm still human. And yet I've learned the more I am present, the more I actually slow down and give them my full self, you know, the more I linger and say, come in and have a snuggle, the more they're actually present with me and able to regulate themselves. So they've been such a huge influence. They've been such a huge teacher. Going through this understanding around uh, the practices of self-compassion, Dr. Kristen Neff and Dr. Chris Germer, both who were my teachers in this program, in this learning, I had the privilege of learning and working with both of them. Um, I, I worked with Kristen Neff on a 
project and we really I think that there's such great influence influences in there in our world around this work I love the work I started a lot of the work from people like um, Sean Aker who really opened my eyes to positive psychology when I had already completed a full master's and had never once learned the word positive psychology in a master's in counseling and really went back and then I'm like this is the foundation of where I believe my value system comes from. People like him, Brené Brown, you know, I think she's just such a global influencer around vulnerability and strength right now. I think I would be amiss to not name her as a teacher and influencer as well. Mm. I think so many people I've spoken to about different topics, it often comes back to Brené Brown. It's just kind of global influence right now that's helping Mm. people. The reason I like it too is maybe not just learning from her, but like, you know, when you get to listen to her and Simon Sinek and and Adam Grant have a conversation together, when you get to hear her and Sufis and David have a conversation Mm. together, you know, she bounces people's big ideas off. And I learned so much in her and because of her capacity. And Mm. so, and her work truly did shift me. Um, you know, when she first wrote about wholehearted living and, and in some of the beer work in her dare to lead book and dare to lead podcast, they're just so important for leaders in our work. So mm. I have to say, like, she's just got such a, an incredible way for me anyways, um, of bringing those, uh, those concepts and learning to a place where I can understand them. She makes it so easy to understand and relatable. She discusses theory um, and her research, but it's not at that high level. Yeah, and I think we all need that as educators. Things that are accessible and understanding and easy. When we feel like we're in the presence of someone who can who can make things authentic and easy for us, we want to learn it, lean into that, right? We mm. want more of that in our life. And she models that. And I can only try and model that in the work that I do is the best that I can. Which actually leads us into the next question. What impact do you hope to have on others? You know, big dreaming thinking is like, I want every educator in the world to understand that, like, what does it mean to practice compassion? Not only to give it to students, but also to themselves. Again, this con- this concept of including oneself in the circle of compassion, that I think our whole world would change if we knew as educators how to model this and share it for others and for ourselves. And I think it would really shift this exhaustion and burnout because it lets us have permission to be messy human beings. Like it really gives us an ability to be perfectly imperfect. And I think we've tried so long to live up to an expectation that's just not working. Um, and I think it's okay to get messy. We let our kids shift with that mindset these days. It's okay to be messy. It's okay to fall apart. It's okay to make mistakes. But when you're in that, how do you mean it? How do we do that for ourselves? How do we meet ourselves? My, my vision would be that all of us as educators can not only know what it feels like to meet ourselves with kindness, both fierce and tender, but we know how to share that and model that with our students. And if I think... If we were able to do that, then we wouldn't have so many people, so many amazing educators uh, leaving leaving the profession. When you think about the impact that's going to have on, on the kids. Well, and we see some of our people who give the most in education are the ones who are burning out. And then what we find sometimes there becomes a resentment because then people who have boundaries are like, you're not showing up as much or you're not, do, you know, you're not doing as much. But what if we all looked at each other as saying we're doing the best that we can? Mm. And at different times and different abilities, at different stages in our life, we have the the ability to make different impact. And so instead of this turn towards each other with judgment, what if we turn towards each other with compassion? 
with saying, what are your boundaries and what are your needs? How do we support you? How do I, can I support me? I really think that our systems would change if we started with that. The next part is some recommendations, some inspirational, influential, or impactful recommendations. Who should we connect with? I'm pausing because I, you know, I, I <laughs> think the most important person we should connect with or connect to is actually the one within us. We don't hear this very often. We get told, go, go learn with the Brené Browns of the world. Like, go teach, go find more, go take in. Mm. And I'd actually invite you to go inward. What do you know that's true to your own heart? What do you value? What's important to you? Because the only way we're going to ever be able to answer what do I need is when we know what's grounded in our own importance. How do we do this? How do we have the space for self-reflection? And I truly think that uh, personal awareness and reflection has got to be one of the best gifts that we can give to other people in our lives. So if you want to learn more, go within. Next one is what book is a must read? Now I tell everyone, pick up Self-Compact for Educators because <laughs> that's my book. And I wrote it um, based on the work of Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. So if you've learned anything or heard those names out there, um, it, they're the foundation of this, the work around self-compassion. And Kristen wrote the foreword for me. I really think I wrote it in an accessible and easy way from a perspective of a teacher. So if you want to learn what these practices are like, it's jam-packed with practices and exercise to actually try. So not just a group of like a sense of stories and and written in, in um, research, it's really attainable and accessible um, with stories from educators who are doing this work and includes practices. So you can get started on this work right away. And if not, go read Brene Brown's Dare to Lead because I also <laughs> think that's me. I like stories. Um, yeah. Like books written as stories. But as you say, you know, especially for something related to the topic that you, you, know, you wrote about, there does sort of does need to be that practical element there as well you know yeah. things that you can actually go away yeah and take I think away the thing and... yeah that's what's so important about this concept is we can read about it but it stays in our knowing sense mm -hmm. and the only way we'll go from like why do we need to know this to how we actually do it is to experience it I wrote it in that way knowing that I wanted somebody to pick it up and feel as they were reading it their whole body kind of goes oh this is just what I needed right not only are there stories that feel warm and inviting and I'm connecting to it because it makes sense to me as a teacher from another teacher but here's something I can try right now what podcast is definitely worth listening to okay well I mean we've kind of said a lot of Brené Brown so <laughs> maybe that is definitely one of my favorites there's so many good wellness at work ones out there right now. I love Adam Grant and I love listening to him as well. I can't remember to think again is maybe his podcast name. I can't remember what the podcast name is called. So that's when I often find myself being pulled to. Um, yeah, I, I go to go to Brene. <laughs> She's my podcast queen. So yeah. <laughs> I find that. And then, you know, Michelle Obama had a podcast for a while. And I actually really enjoyed Michelle Obama's podcast as well. Mm. All right. Uh, next one is what cause should we support? Worldwide, because we're in such different places in the world. One of the things that I really want to support here in Canada anyways is the act of reconciliation mm. uh, with our Indigenous people and in our land. So this is a really important cause to my heart. I think it's also something that's big in Australia right now in different ways. Yep. 
but we talk a lot about reconciliation and, and reconnection to land and to people. I think the biggest cause for me is like, how do we get back to our humanness? How do we support and see each other as humans? And how do we start, you know, being on the cause for kindness? Really? Mm. It's what all anybody needs right now, especially post pandemic on a global level. Mm. We all need to slow down and just be kind, really. And in regards to reconciliation, um, we do talk a lot mm-hmm. about reconciliation. I think we need to start acting more yeah, towards reconciliation. Um, last one, where is your dream travel destination? Oh, I want to come your way. <laughs> I want to come to Australia. I want to come to New Zealand. I want, and and not just come, I want to bring this work to the South Pacific, to New Zealand, to Australia, um, to my educator friends down this way. I want to show up and share. Um, I want to bring my family I had the privilege of being in Australia and, you know, 20 years ago and I've never been back and I would love to come and to connect with teachers. And, and I came to Australia before I was a teacher and I would love to come with this lens now as an educator and Mm. to meet with schools and to talk about this work as a foundational practice to long-term well-being. So Mm. I have a, global dreams to find my way to your your well, coastlines to your the beautiful inner inner parts of Australia yeah. to New Zealand I was a world traveler at one point before I had I had my children and I I love our world and I think mm. it's full of beauty and I just I'm always happy to connect with humans because wherever you go in the world you can find sincere smiles and people who deeply care and I think that's my favorite thing about any opportunity to bring this work is to continue to spread compassion everywhere and I think New Zealand especially and Australia is getting there um, in terms of the First Nations people and traditions and histories and culture. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, I guess, the journey. Um, New Zealand is probably further along their journey than parts of Australia but and quite possibly Canada as well. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really interesting to see that perspective and that side of it as well yeah yeah well and the only way we learn is to be a part of these communities and to continue to be sit beside the people who can teach us so Mm. because 20 years ago probably wouldn't have been much of that sort of stuff and it would have been very um inauthentic anything that was was around where did you travel to in australia last time you came well like let's just remember i was in my you know very early 20s and i was backpacking most of the way so I um I I started in Sydney and went south and down to Melbourne Adelaide actually went over to to Tasmania I did a um a trip right from Melbourne all the way up to Darwin so I went right through the center which was outstanding Mm -hmm. and then I went from Darwin over to Cairns I flew I think yeah. And then travel down the East Coast East, as yeah. so many do um, and found my way back to Sydney. So I did a little loop. You did a lot. Um, uh, yeah. And granted, that was like, I think in two months. So wow. yeah, I was, you I was traveling. I was, <laughs> I was backpacking. I was, yeah. I was, um, you wouldn't have been able to stay in each place for very long though. No, no, it was, mm. I was dabbling in all places and just, and uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was on a journey. Mm. As, so as we all do at different points. You've been to more places than I have. <laughs> <laughs> I need to start traveling around my own country a little bit more than I go overseas. 
So <laughs> there's so many beautiful places in, in, in Australia. It was such a gift to be there. So mm. yeah, I hope I can find a way to bring my own family back there and in, in the coming years. And um, my kids are 11 and 13 and they're just at a fun age to, to come and explore. So mm. yeah, that's the hardest thing is when you do, is where do you go? Because you know, know. You, ca- you can't see everything as much as you tried 20 years yeah. ago to see everything <laughs> in totally. one trip. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's not possible. So it's that prioritizing where, mm-hmm. where do you really want to see the most? Just yeah. like we do that for ourselves. What do I really need for me? You know, mm-hmm. like we can't do all things. We can do some things well. And so just like that, when we're thinking about traveling for educators, it's the same thing. We can't do it all but we can do, we can do some things really, you know, really, really well. Mm. So if you, if, and we get that pull from educators, I got to do everything. Stop that. Mm. Just take one thing. That's your thing. Like do that really, really well. And people will appreciate that. Mm. All right. And we will end off with what are the best ways for listeners to connect and engage with you? Oh, you can find me everywhere. Um, Probably the best way to start with my website, lisabayless.com, but I'm on almost all the socials even including i don't know if you can hear the old eye roll in my in my voice but even <laughs> including tiktok um i'm learning and discovering as i go um, that's one that but, i just have not gone to <laughs> uh, twitter facebook instagram linkedin you can find me um please reach out i love to share this work with educators and to continue to connect so thank you for having me karen i really appreciate it Thank you so much for joining me and for the great conversation. It was thought-provoking and reflective and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening and I hope you found something inspiring, influential or impactful to take away. I'd be honoured if you shared the podcast with friends and colleagues and would greatly appreciate it if you could show your support by subscribing and leaving a review and rating for the podcast. Please connect with me on social media at at KCASW1 on Twitter and at authenticity underscore in underscore edu on Instagram as I'd love to continue the connection.